Well, thank you to the committee for giving me such a, a specific uh, title and something a bit different than I often get to speak on, so I've enjoyed uh, trying to think through some of the issues uh, in this area and coming up with some thoughts to uh, present you with tonight that will hopefully be uh, perhaps uh, provocative, some of it, uh, encouraging, certainly, I hope. Um, maybe you'll think some of it is naive or wrong or whatever, I don't know. Um, but these are my thoughts on the topic, and I'm sure we've got enough time to enter into some dialogue here. Certainly, if you come back for the meal afterwards, we'd be very happy to uh, continue chatting about these issues. Uh, advice to Christian academics, and I've uh, subtitled it Spirituality, Philosophy, and the Quest for Understanding. And we'll get on to these topics as I move through. Uh, this is... Uh, a sort of quintessential example, a Frank Lloyd Wright uh, example of modernist uh, architecture. And, and one of the uh, interesting things, I think, about being a, a Christian uh, academic is you are immersed in a uh, modernist worldview in certainly a lot of disciplines, uh, a worldview that comes from a very different place than the Christian worldview. Um, this is a postmodernist building. Uh, postmodernism, more dominant in certain fields than others, but again, a very different uh, worldview being um, kind of represented by that kind of architecture than the Christian worldview, which is neither a modernist worldview nor a postmodernist worldview. It is, if you like, a pre modernist worldview, a classical worldview. And I think a lot of the, the challenge of being a Christian academic is to um, get over the idea that just because something um, has a long history, it's therefore out of date. And we've all moved on from that. And you've got to keep up with the times. Um, C.S. Lewis said you don't um, tell the truth by looking at a clock or a calendar. I want to... Uh, give you also a couple of quotations as kind of scene setting, a Christian quotation, a non-Christian quotation, and a biblical quotation. Um, of course, not drawing an exhaustive distinction between Christian and biblical there, for you to follow. Uh, this is Alistair McGrath, and a, a very encouraging uh, quote, I think, from his recent book, The Passionate Intellect. And he says, we cannot allow Christ to reign in our hearts if he does not also guide our thinking. The discipleship of the mind is just as important as any other part of the process by which we grow in our faith. We must see ourselves as standard bearers for the spiritual, ethical, imaginative, and intellectual vitality of the Christian faith, working out why we believe that certain things are true and what difference they make to the way we live our lives. Above all, we must expand our vision of the Christian gospel, enabling people to glimpse something of the glory and beauty of God that emerges, that engages not only the mind but the heart. And we impoverish the gospel if we neglect the impact it has on all of our God-given faculties, he says. And I've even put in bold this last sentence at the bottom here. We are thus called upon to demonstrate and embody the truth 
beauty and goodness of faith, of Christian faith. And I think the best term to substitute, to translate the Christian concept of faith in today's culture is trust. Because faith, particularly with the rise of the new atheist movement, is so uh, misunderstood as a concept, so misdefined as a concept, um, that when you say faith to someone who's not a Christian, they hear something that you're not necessarily saying. And I hope um, that if we substitute trust, that is perhaps the best single word um, the substitute that we could give that, that doesn't raise those misunderstandings that the new atheists have of it. So there's obviously an awful lot there, and I, I, you'll see how I come unpack some of that in some of the topics that we go through. But I want to also set the scene with a quote from new atheist Sam Harris. Uh, in a recent article of him talking about James Watson, uh, a non-Christian scientist, and Francis Collins, who's a Christian scientist. And I think this quotation tells you a lot about the, the modernistic mindset of the culture that we're in. Harris says, James Watson, the co-discoverer of the structure of DNA, a Nobel laureate, and the original head of the Human Genome Project, recently asserted that people of African descent appear to be innately less intelligent than white Europeans. A few sentences, spoken off the cuff, resulted in academic defenestration. Watson's opinions on race, says Harris, are disturbing. But his underlying point was not, in principle, and I've highlighted it, unscientific. There is at least a possible scientific basis for his views. While Watson's statement was obnoxious, one cannot say that his views are utterly irrational. Notice we've now got an identification of irrationality with being unscientific. Or that by merely giving voice to them, he has repudiated the scientific worldview. We're clearly moving beyond science to something approaching a philosophy or a religious viewpoint here, actually. He hasn't thereby declared himself immune to the further discoveries of science. Such a distinction, says Harris, would have to be reserved for Watson's successor at the Human Genome Project, Dr. Francis Collins. So gracious me, what is it about Collins that, you know, that's even worse than racism? Well, he's a Christian. Good grief, you know, a Christian in charge of the Human Genome Project, someone who believes that Christ rose from the dead is now in charge of the Human Genome Project. It's the end of civilization. This is uh, from Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And you'll see the, the relevance of this. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Blessed are you, Francis Collins. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. 
Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So how do we as Christians with a calling in academia act as salt and light in our situation, even if it means being branded as worse than a racist? Well, there's a few topics that I want to say some things about, and they all connect up together, and I, I think it's, uh, you need to sort of put the thinking caps on because it's always difficult when, I, when you have to sort of think about a number of separate topics and how they link together, um, but uh, philosophy uh, lends itself quite naturally to sort of interdisciplinary kind of thinking and has a number of sub-disciplines and areas within it, uh, and I really think that uh, if you grasp some of the uh, things I want to say about this, you may find it uh, helpful and encouraging. So I'm going to talk a little bit about spirituality, about philosophy, about transcendent values. We've already uh, had quotes from McGrath and so on about goodness, beauty, truth. Talk about the academic quest for understanding. Talk a little bit about academic freedom. And I'm going to end with some comments that I've uh, asked specifically to address this topic uh, on methodological naturalism. And if you don't know what that is yet, you will by the time we've dealt with the issue, so don't worry. So, spirituality, what a lovely photo. The things you can find on uh, image search. Uh, well, actually, yeah, I think spirituality is, of course, all about love. Love generally does make the world go round. Spirituality is one of those kind of vague terms that gets banded around a lot, and I did some research a while back trying to sort of give a more specific definition of spirituality. And this is what I came up with. A spirituality is a way of relating to, to reality. A way of relating to reality via worldview beliefs, attitudes that connect to those beliefs, and behaviours that flow out of those beliefs and attitudes. So I diagram it like this. Beliefs and attitudes leading to actions. And we relate to ourselves, to each other, the world around us, what we think of as ultimate reality, be that God or the atom or whatever. Um, there's various ways you could cut it up. But any way of relating to reality that involves beliefs and attitudes and leads to actions is a spirituality. So Richard Dawkins has a spirituality, Buddha has a spirituality, Jesus has a spirituality. Jesus, of course, fills out those categories in a very particular way. He taught that true spirituality means to love God, quote, with all of your heart, your attitudes, with all of your mind, including your worldview and your thinking, and with all of your strength, things that you do. Mind, heart, strength, belief, attitudes, actions. Love God with everything you are, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's true spirituality for Jesus. The way into that relationship is, of course, through Jesus himself. Philosophy, I think, is actually a related concept. Literally, the word philosophy comes from two Greek words, philo and sophia, from which we get our modern name Sophie. If you know someone called Sophie, they're named after Sophia. 
And Philo and Sophia literally mean something like the brotherly love of wisdom. Sophia means wisdom. Philo is one of the Greek terms for love, along with like eros and storge and so on. The brotherly love of wisdom. A philosopher, I think, is someone dedicated to the wise pursuit of truth about significant things. If you're dedicated to the wise pursuit of truth about significant things, you're a philosopher, literally speaking. Of course, truth, beliefs, wisdom, it's more to do with your attitude towards knowledge than, than knowing loads of stuff. It's about your, your attitudes. Pursuit, well, it's something you do. Beliefs, attitudes, actions. It is an integrally spiritual thing. Here's uh, three of my favorite quotations about um, kind of thinking and philosophy. John Polkinghorne says, the essence of rationality lies in seeking to conform our thinking to the nature of the object of our thought. Um, American philosopher Peter Kreeft makes a pun on the word, the English word understanding, and he says, you understand something when you stand under the authority of truth to be the thing that determines what you believe about reality. That's when you really understand it. When, when you are letting reality call the shots, not you and what you want or the way you wish it were. Paul Copan says the quest for wisdom isn't merely intellectual fact gathering, it's also a virtuous and spiritual endeavor requiring certain attitudes and character qualities. So we can't separate the character that we're forming in our intellectual academic work life and in our you know, Sunday morning life. We are building one character that has to permeate everything and connect with everything that we're doing. And Thomas V. Morris says, philosophy is the love of wisdom along with an unending desire to find it, understand it, put it into action and pass it on to others. Philosophy, in other words, is an inherently spiritual quest for the true understanding that comes from humbly standing under the authority of the truth to be that which determines what we should believe about reality, what attitudes we should adopt towards reality, and what actions we should take in reality. And you see how these concepts of spirituality and philosophy go hand in hand. Now, Christian spirituality, I suggest, demands just such philosophical virtue. I could put so many verses up here from Old and New Testaments, but think of Colossians 2, where Paul talks about Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And if philosophy means the wise pursuit of, of you know, we're getting towards something about the love of God being uh, intellectual love uh, as well as a sort of feeling love, an attitudinal love, a doing love, not just the kind of constricted modern notion of, oh, I feel in love. 
great as that is, yeah, I've, I've been there, but it's a much broader, deeper concept. Or 1 Thessalonians, test everything, hold on to the good. The wise pursuit of true answers to significant questions requires us to stand under the authority of truth, goodness, and beauty, which are the three objective transcendental values, as they're called in the medieval period, the three fundamental classical values, truth, beauty, goodness. Again, I could show you so many verses, but... Think, I think primarily of Paul in um, Letter to Philippians, chapter 4. I'll put a bit of the introduction here, but, but start down here. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, truth. Not, note, whatever's true for you, with the postmodernists, not, you know, different strokes for different folks, but whatever is true, Paul was no relativist. Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure. And again, the terms here are not just wishy-washy kind of terms. Goodness. Whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. What really is beautiful. Not what you just happen to admire. Not saying what the things that, think about the things that you do admire. You know. People admire all sorts of things, but are the things that they're admiring admirable in and of themselves? So, St. Paul was right down with these classical concepts of truth, beauty, goodness. Is that my first 15? Thank you. Uh, I've got this on the handout, and I won't be going into the far right-hand column, which I do in, in different contexts, but I think you, you get a nice grid of any spirituality being a sort of worldview, beliefs, attitude, actions. Such things are judged against these classical values. You're, of course, judging beliefs by are they true or not? Judging attitudes by are they beautiful? Are, are you forming a beautiful character by developing those attitudes, those second nature responses to reality? And actions, well, of course, you judge, well, is, is that a good way to behave or not? Um, in terms of the classical rhetoric, that then links up in terms of communication theory uh, about logos, pathos, and ethos, but we needn't go there tonight unless you want to ask me questions about it. So, that's a little bit about spirituality and philosophy and how they tie in with the Christian view of things, with a broad understanding, uh, as uh, we were reading earlier, of the Gospel. What about the academic quest for understanding? This is uh, Raphael's painting uh, of the, uh, the Greek Academy with uh, Plato pointing up to the world of the forms and Aristotle pointing at, at the world around us in the center and all other Greek thinkers around them. Originally, the Greek school of philosophy uh, founded in about 385 BC by Plato in the gardens of Academia northwest of Athens. It was just where the first philosophy school was, academe. Oh, are you an academic? You're one of those academics. 
That's what you are if you're an academic. So the very root of the concept of being an academic is intrinsically linked with philosophy. And I'm going to suggest that the academic process of coming to understand reality, and I take it that that is at least a large chunk of what, what we do as academics, we're trying to understand reality, involves what you might call a hermeneutical dialogue. Hermeneutics, of course, a word we get from a theological context, which means how to correctly understand a text when you're reading the Bible. How do we understand what it's really saying, rather than imposing my own preconcepted, uh, preconceptions and meanings upon it? What does it mean in its original context, and things like this? Reading out of, rather than reading into. Standing under the authority of the truth, rather than saying, I'm going to determine what's true. A dialogue between people's spirituality, because everyone has one, including that, of course, worldview. People's criteria of theory choice, something that applies both to assembling, say, a set of data that you're interested in understanding or explaining, and to what explanation you give for that set of data, be that, you know, um, historical writings or uh, experiment, experimental measurements from the lab or whatever. The, the set of data that you end up with, that you're saying, hey, this is what we're trying to understand or explain. And then, of course, the interpretation and or explanation that you're reaching for, that you're thinking about. You may deduce or induce to a particular interpretation of that data or a particular explanation of why it exists. So I think there's a, a rather complicated dialogue between these factors at work in the sort of academic debate about how we should understand reality. People's spirituality, their criteria of what makes for a good explanation or set of data that we should be concerned with, and uh, some agreement or disagreement over what the data is, and agreement or disagreement over arriving at an explanation or interpretation of that reality. Perhaps it's a little more understandable if you put it in a diagram form like this. So we have here um, worldview, criteria of theory choice, which applies to both the next categories, a set of data, and an explanation, by which I'm also kind of subsuming interpretation. So let's think about, as we've got the picture in the background here of doubting Thomas, poking uh, Christ in the side there. Suppose you have an atheistic worldview. You think there is no God. You think, therefore, it's very unlikely that there are any works of God, such as miracles. So among your criteria of theory choice, you probably think it rational to have something like don't reach for a miraculous explanation of stuff, because that's just stupid. It doesn't make sense. If you then look at the set of agreed data, uh, at least sort of uh, between half a dozen and a dozen points of agreed data that you could mention among historians, New Testament scholars, pertaining to the resurrection, and then you're coming on to think about, well, how do I best explain or understand that data. Well, if you've approached it 
with a fairly firm commitment to an atheist viewpoint in mind, if you've approached the data with criteria of rationality in hand that say things like, don't consider miracles as explanations, then by the time you come to explaining things like the existence of the empty tomb, the fact that a lot of, lot of individuals and groups of people sincerely thought they'd met Jesus after he was dead and it turned their uh, socio-spiritual lives around and so on, well, you're probably going to be driven to saying something like, well, this must be some kind of deceit, some kind of conspiracy, or some kind of delusion on a part of the witnesses, or... I don't know what happened, but it sure wasn't a resurrection from the dead. Okay. You can see there's a kind of natural flow through that kind of chart of thinking that way. On the other hand, of course, if you came from a theistic worldview in which you believe there is a God, there could be miracles, your criteria of theory choice might include something like, you might want to think about miracles as an explanation for things, at least, you know, if they seem to be the best explanation by other sensible-seeming criteria. It might be the last kind of explanation that you go for, not the first port of call, but you're not ruling it off the table a priori. Here's our agreed set of data. Maybe you might then think that the other criteria of theory choice make it quite reasonable to think that there really was a resurrection. So even if there's an agreement here, a disagreement here will probably lead to some kind of disagreement here which can explain a disagreement here at the end. And see how that dialogue between these different elements is going to affect the discussion. So that Anthony flew of course, he was a, for a long time an atheist, a naturalist, and some years before his death recently, uh, came to believe in some kind of a creator, but he didn't come to believe in, in any revelatory uh, claim. He admitted, certainly, given some beliefs about God, the occurrence of the resurrection does become enormously more likely. He didn't think it actually happened. But he was prepared to say, of course, if you think there's a God, it's much more plausible to think that there was a resurrection than if you don't. I'm down with that, of course. There's Gary Habermas, who was a philosophical friend of Flew's. They had many debates on that very topic that you can track down. He says, everyone generally operates within his or her own concept of reality. Of course they do. Having said this, the factual data are still crucial. We do need to be informed by the data we receive. And sometimes this is what happens. The evidence on a subject can convince us, even contrary to our former position. So there's this dialogue. Depends on your position coming in, how committed you are to it, whether you think you've got really good reasons for that position, what the criteria you admit are, what the data you admit are, how strongly a certain... Uh, argument for a particular interpretation that, that may go against your initial worldview might be. There's this sort of hermeneutical dialogue. But there are criteria, ultimately dependent upon the transcendental values, for the wise choice of 
a spirituality. The wise choice of data, the wise choice of interpretations thereof. Ah, statue of uh, wisdom. Particularly logical coherence and incoherence. If something's logically self-contradictory, incoherent, but it can't be true. If it's logically coherent, it could be true. And correspondence to reality is really the big one. We're asking, well, what is true? What are the facts? And there you might mention all sorts of principles like principle of credulity, testimony, logical argument forms, explanatory power and scope connected with Occam's razor. There's all sorts of um, discussions within different disciplines about what are good criteria for arriving at the right historical, legal, scientific judgments. So, how's my time going there, Matthew? No, I have your second... second. Fifteen. Okay, that's good. We're on track. Academic freedom. I thought it was very appropriate... Uh, little metaphor of a picture here. Academic freedom. Let me put something out there and see how it floats. Academic freedom tolerates, tolerates competing explanatory frameworks and hypotheses. And thus allows for the existence of worldview-specific criteria of theory choice and or rejects criteria of theory choice that aren't genuinely worldview neutral. Tolerates competing frameworks and explanations, allows for worldview specific criteria of theory choice, and or rejects criteria of theory choice that aren't genuinely neutral. In other words, let a thousand flowers bloom. But if we must uh, all tend the same field, it had better not be a monoculture if we're going to allow academic freedom. So I can say something about methodological naturalism. It was a phrase uh, coined by a guy called Paul DeVries in a 1983 conference and published a few years later in Christian Scholars Review. And he made a distinction, uh, which has since become a very famous distinction in the science-religion discussion, between what he called methodological naturalism, that's a disciplinary method that's supposedly neutral concerning God's existence, and metaphysical naturalism as the worldview, the worldview of materialism, in other words, a view that denies the existence of a transcendent God. De Vries states, the natural sciences are committed to the systematic analysis of matter and energy within the context of methodological naturalism. Christian philosopher Nancy Murphy asserts, science as science seeks naturalistic explanations. Anyone who attributes the characteristics of living things to a creative intelligence has, by definition, stepped into the arena of either metaphysics or theology. So, so you see what's going on. It's, this guy is saying, let's define science as methodologically naturalistic. 
that means that science doesn't get to say materialism as a worldview is true, but scientists have to work as if it were. As if materialism were true. And then it can be counted as science. As soon as you say anything that's not, not working as if materialism were true, then you're no longer doing science, you're now doing theology or philosophy of some kind. Well, that's just how we're going to define things. Now, you can kind of see a pragmatic justification for that, at least, in terms of, you know, I might be a Christian, and you might be an atheist, and you might be an agnostic, and we all want to do science and work in the same lab. And this kind of keeps the peace. You know, it keeps, keeps the philosophical, theological arguments for the pub afterwards. You know. Okay. And terminological disputes and arguments about, well, what do we mean by, what are we going to agree to call something, aren't really all that interesting. As I said here, truth matters more than subject. An explanation can be true without being scientific. And, and methodological naturalism accepts that, at least. But let me put it like this. Methodological naturalism is only genuinely worldview neutral to the extent that explanations framed in terms of a theistic metaphysic, what Alvin Plantinga calls theistic science, are genuinely welcomed within the academy as live competitors to methodologically naturalistic scientific explanations. Because methodology is not saying materialism is true, theism is not true. And if you want to say, well, I think this theistic explanation of something in the world is true, are you actually going to be allowed to get that a serious hearing at the table? If so, well, okay, not much of a problem, practically speaking. But it seems to me that that's not the case. And that in practice, at least, therefore, methodological naturalism is not a genuinely neutral criteria of theory choice. Rather, it's a rule that stifles academic freedom. It could put the argument like this. Premise one, a good criteria of theory choice should aim at excluding falsehood and or homing in upon the truth. Any criteria of, of how we select our data to be explained or how we explain it that doesn't aim at excluding what's actually false or homing in on what's actually true, I would suggest isn't a good criteria. But methodological naturalism doesn't aim at either of those goals. It doesn't aim at excluding what's false or homing in on what's actually true. Therefore, methodological naturalism is not a good criteria of theory choice. Atheist philosopher of science Bradley Monton, in his book Seeking God in Science, puts it like this. If science really is permanently committed to methodological naturalism, it follows that the aim of science is not generating true theories. 
Instead, the aim of science would be something like generating the best theories that can be formulated subject to the restriction that the theories are naturalistic. Science, he says, is better off without being shackled to methodological naturalism. And this guy is an atheist philosopher of science. Actually, amongst the philosopher of science community, methodological naturalism is basically dead and buried. as not a good criteria of theory choice, something science would be better off without. Put it like this. You can make a distinction, I've made this in some of my writings, between hard and soft methodological naturalism. The hard form would say, don't ever mention intelligence to explain something within the sciences. And the soft form of methodological naturalism would say, don't ever mention anything explicitly supernatural to explain something within the sciences. The hard form is far too restrictive, clearly. The soft form is at least, I think, genuinely worldview neutral. Because whether or not an intelligent cause of something is also a supernatural intelligent cause of something, it's still an intelligent cause of something. And we can boot the is it supernatural or not question off to the philosophers and the theologians while still including the is it intelligence question within the sciences. After all, many sciences already depend upon inferring intelligent causes. Search for extraterrestrial intelligence, archaeology, cryptography, forensic science, fraud detection, parapsychology, psychology, sociology all use personal agency as an explanation for certain phenomena. J.P. Morland says, as a Christian philosopher, philosopher of science, among other things, there's nothing non-scientific about appealing to personal agency and the like in a scientific explanation, per se. But excluding intelligence from, say, cosmology or biology, just a priori, whilst admitting it in other scientific fields seems to me to require an unjustified double standard. So perhaps the problem, if there is one, isn't with mentioning intelligence as an explanation within science, but with mentioning the supernatural. It becomes controversial when people think that perhaps the best explanation of that intelligence is going to be a supernatural one. Then we want to keep it out. But that's, that's rejecting an explanation on the basis of its implications within philosophy. Not for any good scientific reason, if we want to define things that way. Now, with many atheist philosophers of science, actually, I, I disagree. There would be many atheist philosophers of science who would say things like, if God, say, had a genuine uh, explanatory benefit over a naturalistic explanation of, say, the Big Bang or the origin of life or whatever, then God should be allowed into science they would just argue that he's not the best explanation. But they're not arguing at the level of what we mean by science and so on. But I propose this sort of halfway house of soft methodological naturalism, which I think is genuinely worldview neutral at least. Let me put it like this. Must the, um, the physicalist and the dualist about the mind-body problem, you know, do I, am I just my brain? Or is there something genuinely real about me that's non-physical? Do I have a soul or a spirit, in other words? Suppose 
This forensic science here, scientist here is a materialist, he's a monist. He thinks his mind just is his brain. But this forensic scientist here is a dualist. She thinks that minds are more than just brains. Do they have to solve this philosophical dispute before they can agree in the forensic science lab that someone was pushed rather than fell? That intelligence is the best explanation of the cadaver before them? Well, obviously they don't have to decide this age-old philosophical issue. But, you know, supposing dualism is actually true, then to mention intelligence as an explanation for the, the cadaver is to mention a supernatural reality. But we put that to one side and we still allow that we can do science without having even an agreed answer to whether or not dualism about the mind-body problem is true. Seems to me that that's the same kind of line that we should draw with mentioning intelligence to say, explain the origin of life. Newton was obviously a very famous scientist. He said the business of science is to deduce causes from effects till we come to the very first cause, which certainly is not mechanical. The methodological naturalism uh, would have come of a bit of a surprise to Newton, I think. His first rule of reasoning in natural philosophy, as science was then called, from volume two of the Principia, is we are to admit no more cause of natural things than such as are both true and sufficient to explain their appearances. Nothing there about, and which, by the way, fit with a materialistic worldview if that were to be true. Science is the search for the best, the simplest adequate explanation of physical reality, simpliciter. And on some occasions, the explanation may not be mechanical, but intelligent. And intelligence may be a supernatural thing, but whether or not we leave that for the philosophers and theologians just depends on how you want to define stuff. But if you uh, want to abstract natural philosophy from the rest of philosophy, as we tend to do these days, then I suggest that soft methodological naturalism is a much better way of doing it than meta... meta uh, it's late at night, isn't it now? Methodological naturalism per se. So, some summary and some um, practical applicatory kind of gestures. Because all I've kind of given you is some categories to do your own thinking through of your own subjects with. Uh, I couldn't pretend to come here and be an expert on all subjects and tell you, well, this is how you ought to go about it. But I want to suggest to you some tools, as it were, for doing that spade work yourself. So everyone has a spirituality. And that impinges upon their academic work. Uh, and if we're going to be whole, integrated people, then, then so it should. Commitment to Christian spirituality entails a commitment to the spiritual quest known as philosophy. It's deeply Christian to be a philosopher in the original sense of the word. Every Christian should be a philosopher, a lover of wisdom, the wisdom of God, the Logos, the Christ, an academic in the original sense. 
commitment to Christ and commitment to philosophy necessitate commitment to the objective value of truth, goodness and beauty, I suggest. Academic inquiry involves a dialogue between competing spiritualities, data sets, interpretations, explanations thereof, on the basis of rational criteria of warrant and theory choice. Academic freedom tolerates, that's not the same thing as endorses, tolerates competing explanatory frameworks, competing hypotheses, allows for worldview-specific criteria of theory choice, or at least rejects criteria of theory choice that aren't genuinely worldview-neutral. And a methodological naturalism, I put the wrong one up there, sorry, methodological naturalism I think isn't genuinely neutral, at least in practice. We should reject it and at least adopt soft methodological naturalism. So I would encourage you, as you begin to try and apply those kind of categories to things, to understand and be upfront about your own spirituality, realizing that everyone's got one. Try and understand others' spirituality as well. Treat being academic as a spiritual discipline and being an academic as a spiritual calling. So think about how these spiritualities affect academia. Think about warrant and the criteria of theory choice within your discipline. And particularly be on the lookout for those that aren't genuinely neutral or that exclude different viewpoints. So I'm kind of calling upon the academic community of Christians to defend the concepts of truth and goodness and beauty and tolerance and academic freedom. That's one way of being salt and light in the academic community. Which really means being prepared to think through your subject from the ground up. Because you may realize that the people who've laid the, the, the foundations of your subject may have been coming at it from a completely antithetical spirituality. And may be relying upon criteria of theory choice that are not necessarily good criteria of theory choice when you look at it from a different viewpoint, or when you look at it from the viewpoint of allowing genuine academic freedom. So, I know a lot of skitting around a lot of topics, but I hope you kind of followed the, the, the thread that was tying them together there. If I was called upon to uh, recommend one book to read, uh, it would be this one uh, by J.P. Morland called... Love Your God With All Your Mind. Uh, absolute classic, The Role of Reason in the Life of the Soul. Love Your God With All Your Mind by J.P. Morland. Um, Philip Johnson and his recommendation on the back says, Morland exemplifies the Christian mind as it ought to be, tough and analytic, but also generous and caring. Christians who want to develop their minds in the service of Christ couldn't find a better teacher or a better book for the task. And I... I double that. So, I'm done, and let's open the floor and uh, have a chat about this and look forward to some nice food. <laughs>